All right, welcome back to that 70s card show. I'm your host, John Keating, and I thank you for joining me as I take a look back at the cards and the culture of the very colorful 1970s. We'll revisit a more simple time in our hobby by taking a deep dive into the sets and the stats with a generous amount of dad facts sprinkled in. 70s Card Show is currently sponsored by nobody. If you have a question, concern, or comment, please reach out to me at that 70s card show at gmail.com, 70s card on Twitter, or of course, that 70s card show on YouTube. Hey, here we are. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. We're going to hit this thing pretty heavy right out of the gate here. Uh, I have an interview. I haven't done an interview in a while, but I have somebody that uh, I just told him that feels like he's been in my life forever. I've seen his face countless times looking up at me from shoeboxes and uh, television screens and all that stuff. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring on uh, the incomparable. Uh, let's see if I get you on here, sir. Jerry Royce is here with us. So, Jerry, thank you for joining me on my little uh, program. Appreciate it. How you doing? Everything good? Everything is good, John. Glad we got everything set up. To those who don't know, sometimes these things take a little while to get set up and, and yeah. make it look right. We're supposed to make it look easy uh, yep. because we're professionals, but it sometimes takes a few minutes. It was easier in the old days, wasn't it? That's for sure. <laughs> it seems like it. So, I'm going to run over, run down some things here. The, you know, you've had a remarkable career, uh, 220 wins, which is, which is uh, pretty sneaky here. Without ever, without ever having a 20 win season. With that said, you had 12 double digit win seasons. You had five 15 win seasons, three 18 win seasons, two time All Star, uh, the very rare bird that is a four decade player. Uh, which is uh, pretty phenomenal. You know, I grew up with uh, Minnie Minoso and Tim McCarver uh, achieving that feat. And of course, uh, you did it as well. 1981 world champion. Uh, of course, 1980, you threw a no-hitter, which uh, hopefully we'll get to that. But uh, just an incredible, again, an incredible, uh, I think, footprint or an imprint you've had on the sport as well as the hobby. And we'll get to the hobby part a little bit later because another thing that doesn't that I didn't read was 21 years straight of having a Topps baseball card, which is not, uh, that's uh, no easy thing either. And uh, it's a pretty incredible run you had there. And, uh, but it all started, it all started in San Louis, right? You're a native of St. Louis, right? That's it. What was your, you grew up with some uh, pretty impressive teams and uh, in, in, in quite a history there in St. Louis of, of ball players. But uh, what's your first memory of, of, uh, baseball, I guess, professional baseball. No, professional baseball. Well, we got to go back. Let's wind clock back oh, to sometime in the mid-50s. And okay. it was my grandfather who got me interested. He liked to watch ball games. He was retired at the time. And he used to take the streetcar. He was a plumber. And on his way home, Sportsman's Park, where the Cardinals and the Browns played, he would stop off um, to watch a couple of innings before he headed home by six. A couple of things of note, the games began right around three o'clock, a few minutes before or after, I can't remember specifically, but they also lasted about two, two hours and 15 minutes. So that gave him plenty of time to get back on the streetcar for the <laughs> next couple of miles so that he could be home by six o'clock. So he pretty much did it all. Uh, when he lived with us later in his life, uh, he asked me to get the newspaper, the morning newspaper, so he could read the box scores. Taught me how to read the box scores. 
and he taught me how to learn which was the fourth edition of the now defunct St. Louis Globe Democrat. And we would talk about different things like some of the players that appeared in the box scores. And he went all the way back to Babe Ruth, watching Babe in the American League when the Yankees came in to play the Browns. And then when the weather was good, he'd watch the Cardinals play. So that means he got to see some of those great teams in the late 40s and also probably followed the career of Stan Musial all the way through. So for me, what a rich background that was to get me interested in baseball. I was going to ask you about the Browns. Do you remember the Browns? And was that, I mean, what an opportunity to see both leagues. But was that something that you remember the Browns? Because I think they left when in 53 or 54? Yeah, 53 was their last. I hope I get this right. Yeah, 53, their last season. And 54, they became the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, I never went to see a Browns game. I was too young, and I really didn't know that much about it. Uh, I didn't get to see my first big league game until about four or five years later, sometime in the late 50s. It was the only time my dad took us to a ball game. It was a beautiful summer Sunday afternoon when the humidity was low. Hold on. <clears throat> but everybody was high on the Cardinals. Right, right. So I walked inside that ballpark, smelled the smells, heard the noises, and when I walked up the ramp to see the field, I thought I'd taken a step into heaven. The it's green amazing. grass without weeds, the infield, the white warning track all the way around the ballpark, the big clock up in right center that I used to hear so many hitters would hit it off that clock. And then there was the big scoreboard in left field. All of that surrounded by the voices of Harry Carey, Joe Garagiola, yeah. and Jack Buck. So yeah. you put all of that together. And when you're eight or nine years old, that's going to leave quite an impression. And then I said on the way home from that ball game, I said, I want to be a major league ball player. My brother, six years older than me, says, hey, a lot of us want to be major leaguers. <laughs> but do you realize the odds are something like one in a million? Right. And then one in one of those rare moments that you have as an eight-year-old, when you come back with an answer that's a classic, I said, yeah, but why can't that one be me? And as Brilliant, it turned man. out... I was that one. You're two-time state champ, right? Baseball. So you were, yeah, you, were you didn't yeah, come out of had, nowhere, right? Well, we had, um, at the time, McDonald Aircraft was one of the biggest employers in the St. Louis area. They were making airplanes, and sadly, for the Vietnam War, but it provided employment for a lot of people. And as a result, houses were built, the economy was was good, and a lot of families moved in. And when you have a draw like we did, we had a thousand in our high school graduating class, wow. as did a lot of other high schools around us. So there was a lot of talent to choose from. And on the high school teams that I played on, I either played against or played with all of the guys on those teams. So uh, we weren't strangers to one another and we were able to put together back to back championships. And then you get drafted by your hometown team, which absolutely uh, is crazy, right? Because back in the day, you could sign local players, but to get drafted uh, must have been amazing. And you were drafted in the second round, 67, I think. You right. Remember who Six, you, it was who the you were drafted round. Do you know who you were drafted right behind? Right behind. At the, as I said here, I was 30th. Who was 29th? Dave Kingman. There you go. And then uh, two slots before that was Vita Blue, who uh, is kind of – 
intertwined with your career as we go along. Uh, oh, yeah, Vida and I met yeah. Vida and I met quite a few times during the course of yeah. our minor league career or major league career and then post career. So there was a bit of a history with Vida. Yeah, and, 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 and we got to be as good of friends as you could possibly oh, really? be with um uh, with the limitations of not really knowing one another that well. Right. You know, I found out after I retired how great some of these guys were that played on other teams that I refused to talk to. Right. That was just my competitive nature speaking, but uh, it, it led me to play 22 years and have quite a bit of success. But at the same time, it cost me in some personal relationships because, as I said, there were some pretty nice people along the way. Right, right. Now, you talked about your minors. You briefly touched on the minors there. You come up, I think, at 60, end of 69, but you were coached or managed, I guess, in the minors by Warren Spahn. Is that correct? Yes, in 1970 and all of 69. Well, how so do you, you know, learn from a left-hander like that? You're a left-hander. He's a left-hander. That must have been a match made in heaven, I guess, right? Well, it was. Unfortunately, Warren was the winningest left-handed pitcher in baseball history, and the way that he could teach it was way college level where i was as an 18 or 19 year old i was still somewhere in high school so it took a lot of growing on my part a lot of experience uh, for me to understand some of the things he was talking about of course now i do have a pretty good idea of some of the things that he said and could have a conversation with him about it but uh back then i i took what i could learned what i could and right. it got me it helped get me to the big leagues you made that debut i guess in the in bush right you weren't in uh sportsman you were in bush the new bush stadium i guess that's where you made your debut oh jerry yeah. park it was in jerry yeah, it was right? in jerry park uh, cardinals right. came over in yeah. may of 66 from uh sportsman's park bush stadium one to bush stadium two and i, I did make a debut i think my debut at home was in 1970 as i was called up in mid-june but my first start was in Jerry Park. Uh, Cardinals were, even though they finished in first place, they were play, either playing teams that had a chance to win or they had a chance to win. So Red Shandies, the manager, had to play the guys uh, who helped get them there. Right. And in order to not send a rookie lineup out against a team that's contending, that's right. not real baseball. But Red did what he had to do. And when the time came to get everybody in and I was first up and he put me in against the Expos in Montreal, the other guys that got called up played against the Phillies who finished below us in the standings. Gotcha. Now, uh, a great, a great debut, right? Seven innings. I think it was shut out. I think it was, a. I think you shut them out maybe. Uh, and then you, it was, was, but it, you have to take into account the conditions. It was cold. <laughs> it was, it was a little bit of wind. Yeah. And there were two rain delays, one at the start of the game and the one somewhere in the second or third inning. And uh, then we had another rain out after our rain delay after seven. And Red said to me, I'm not going to have you warm up another time. You're done for the day. Nice going. And let's see if we can hold this lead for you. And they did. So I got a win in 1969. Yeah, I thought it was all everything the whole world opened up for you at that point right you were gonna win every game from there on out i suppose right <laughs> yeah well yeah that's somebody's dream that didn't happen to me <laughs> it's easy uh, right <laughs> yeah it's supposed to be easy uh, yeah. I, you know i think back 
And that first spring training in 1969, I wasn't even out of high school two years. And I'm sitting in a locker room with guys who were in the World Series in 67 and 68. It was and a dynasty. Was like a, they were, they were a like dynasty. A, you know. Yeah, it was like a baseball card collection yeah. coming to life. Yeah. Now, I hope that all that stuff that was on the back of those tops cards were <laughs> true because that's how I remembered a lot of these guys. Right. So I knew them. They they got to know me as spring training went on. Well, you had Bob Gibson, you had Lou Brock, you had Joe Torre. Uh, one of my, the unsung heroes of baseball, Kurt Flood as well. So what were those guys like in the locker room? You walk into that locker room, were they welcoming? Were they, what, is it as you would imagine? There's the kid, there's your seat, don't say a word. What what was the uh, atmosphere for someone like well, you? Well, for, for me, I was, I was just sitting and watching and the only guys that I would talk to, unless I was spoken to first, would be the guys that I played with or the minor league guys. Okay. Um, so until I felt comfortable addressing somebody, I just pretty much stayed away other than to say hello, good morning, or I've... see you tomorrow, something like that. So I, I kept to myself, learned as much as I could. And boy, there was a lot to learn because in 1969, that was when uh, August Bush delivered his infamous clubhouse speech about where he thought the game was going. Uh, and it was also at that time that he had prolonged contract negotiations with both Kurt Flood and Steve Carlton. Right. I hope I got that year right with Carlton. Carlton was a little it, later, 72, right? I think well, was, uh, he had one prior to that, okay. which led to his trade in 72. Yeah. And Mr. Bush, uh, he was used to working with unions, and that kind of yeah. surprised me. Yeah. So and and he made he got deals done, but when it came to the Cardinals, he was as anti-union as anybody could be. Right. It was like somebody was telling him how to run his hobby, and he took it personally, and yeah. became yeah. and he became a staunch defender of the owners. And as a result, when he created those waves, well, they splashed on Kurt Flood, they splashed on Carlton. And eventually some of that wake <laughs> caught up with me in 1972. Now, before we get to that, can you either confirm or deny that uh, Steve Carlton's from Mars? Uh, I grew up watching Steve Mar Carlton <laughs> and I, that, that man is from a different planet, I believe. Uh, but what was he like? Was he as quiet and, and as, and I, I guess uh, the only way I can describe him is uncomfortable. It seemed like he'd be uncomfortable around other people. Was he like that from the get go or was that? No, no. He in St. Louis, he um, he pretty much went with the program. If uh, Billy Muffet, the pitching coach, said it's time to run, let's go, let's gotcha. get him. Gotcha. And he got his running in. All of that changed when he got to Philadelphia. Yeah, and met Gus Heffling, Gus Heffling, the strength yep. and conditioning coach. And yep. Gus had a different means to train guys. Yep. And Steve bought into it wholeheartedly, and as a result, had one of the greatest seasons that any pitcher could ever want 27 wins. And well, you've got all the information there about it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Wood Carlton had become a hall of famer had he stayed in St. Louis. Well, nobody really knows for sure, but one thing is for certain, he went to Philadelphia and found a formula that worked specifically for him that allowed him uh, an entry into the hall of fame. And then uh, I think, I believe you guys, uh, I assume you left at the same time 
for different reasons, obviously. His was over contract. Yours was over your mustache, right? Yeah, it was. He he was traded. I can't remember the, the exact date. Sometime in February, and I was traded on April fifteenth. Okay. And uh, in 1996, I went back to St. Louis, went to a ball game and sat in the press box. And there was Bing Devine, who used to be the manager or general manager of the Cardinals, who was responsible for both trades. And Bing was sitting there by himself. I said, (laughs) hello. And I said, you got a few minutes? He said, yeah, sit down. Let's talk. Let's visit. We haven't done this for a while. Boy, was was that an understatement. So I asked him right up and I said, Bing, what happened? Why was it that you traded me? And he said, you remember this situation with Carlton, don't you? And I said, I, I sure do. Uh, he, he ended up signing a two-year contract when he held out the first time. And then when he held out the second time, his feeling was that he was at least half the pitcher that Bob Gibson was, and he wanted to be paid accordingly. Well, Mr. Bush didn't agree with that. And finally said, get rid of him. So Bing had to do it. Right. Now, I thought that it would only strengthen my position as being the only other left-hander on the staff. But I just guessed wrong because <laughs> Mr. Bush, when he found out that I had a mustache, didn't even didn't even bother to say, get tell him to do this or do that or or see what it's all about. We I still hadn't signed a contract. And he said, I don't want to deal with any more problems. Trade him. And if you don't, he told Bing Devine, I'm going to get rid of you. Some incentive right there, huh? Yeah, it's an ultimatum. And and, and he felt the impact. So uh, it was opening day in St. Louis. Opening day. And that uh, that night I came home, got a phone call, and was told I was traded to Houston. Go to the Astrodome, huh? Uh, you actually you had a pretty good, I guess, I don't know whether it was a coming out year for you, but you led that team in strikeouts, I believe, that year. I think you let and that and and they had some pitchers down there. You know they had some pitchers in Houston. So yeah, Holy. there there were some pitchers that um that were in the midst of a pretty good career. Don Wilson yep. and Larry Durker, Dave mm-hmm. Roberts came over from San Diego and Forsh, and, right? Uh, he he was just coming into his own. Ken yep. Forsh yep. was good. Tom Griffin, who probably would have been a number five starter, maybe a number four on a number of other clubs got a couple of starts during the course of that year as well. So it was a strong pitching staff. Um, but when 73 rolled around and everybody said now that these guys are mature, we got a team that can, t- that can contend because that 72 Astros uh, offense led the league and run scoring. So they figured this would, in 73, it'd be the year that all of it would come together. Durker got hurt. Leo DeRocher took over. And personalities clashed. And the hitting just wasn't the same as it was the year before. Um, So the Astros, though they were a contending team in 72 and 73, um, they just missed the boat uh, by a a couple of things that happened. Guys right. got real old over the winter and couldn't uh, put up the same numbers, and other guys progressed while others were injured. So it's an age-old story of what happened to these guys because they were so good. Well, right. in a nutshell, that was it. Yeah, you were uh, you, you had you and uh, DeRocher, There was a little friction there, right? And you're talking about a guy who played with Babe Ruth and and was in camp. He was a gas house gang. I don't know whether your dad did. Your dad think he was a legend or your family, right? From the old you Cardinals know, uh, days, right? 
my dad never really talked a whole lot about baseball. My grandpa, right. uh, you know, I, I don't remember him saying anything about Leo, okay. um, but, uh, but I knew everything there that I could possibly know about him. Uh, he was just a, a different person. And <laughs> old, old school his, or just a different person? Like even well, for old school, he was different. Well, it's a little more complicated than saying just old school. Old school kind of gives you an idea, but he, he wanted to be—he wanted to be a lot of things. Uh, he figured that he's going to do it this way, and that is, he wanted to be friends with the players. Huh? Now, that's interesting. Now, think. Yeah, step back and think about this for a second. You got a guy sixty-five years old who had played with Babe Ruth, who had managed and been parts of some great Dodger teams some great Giants teams, and also a, a pretty good team with the Cubs in 69. Yep. Yep. And now he wants to suddenly be friends with guys who are in their mid-20s. <laughs> right. Well, that that just didn't click. And if you read his book, Nice Guys Finish Last, you'll see you know, what he tried to do. Rather than be Leo, he tried to be someone else. But I think with Leo, like a lot of other players, as it turned out and we saw later, uh, they became past their prime. Right. Yeah. And then you, you end up in Pittsburgh, right? So you're, mm -hmm. you're at this point, you're, you just keep getting in the thick of things there. The the pirates were an absolute powerhouse as well back then. I know there, there was a bit of a, uh, a, a pall over the club over Clemente, but you end up there at 74, right? That's it. And, and now, uh, still a great team though. Right. It was still a great team. A lot of the guys who had won in 71 were still there. It was a close-knit team because most of the guys from that 71 club came up through the organization. So they were close-knit, but they were, boy, they were a lot different. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, the I think I described in my book, I said the, the Pirates, uh, when it was, when guys got in the clubhouse, it was like a half hour after a fraternity brother had uncorked the keg. It was, it was crazy time. But then about six thirty, seven o'clock guys got into baseball mode and went out wow. there and just mashed. So was pops, it was pops a, running things. Then it was pop pops was already I, running things. I would say, you know, I would say, so he was the team leader, but there were a lot of other guys who were yeah. capable of doing it as well. Yeah. who led but they did so in different ways uh it was um it was a different kind of ball club and the way they put it together as danny murtaugh and joe brown the general manager said is we try to find guys who are ready for the big leagues in some form or fashion right and when they are we bring them up here but the problem is we got to find a position for them and a lot of these positions just aren't open so we plug them in somewhere so we can use their bat and we just score a lot of runs. Right. Plus we got a couple of guys in the bullpen that after the sixth inning, uh, they can hold the lead. They're really good at that. So when I came over, he told me, he says, you give me six innings, you're going to win a lot of ball games. I said, Danny, I'm not going to become a six inning pitcher. My thoughts are going nine every time yeah. I go out there. So uh, it's nice to know that those other guys are there but my thoughts are going nine. That was just the approach that I had. So I, I think he was appreciative of it. And I did get quite a few complete games in, but I was thankful during the course of the season to have the guys who were in the bullpen come in and put out some of my fires. Yeah. You, uh, 75, uh, was a big year, right? 18 and 11, 
2.75 ERA, and like I said, 15 complete games, which is uh, unheard of these days, obviously. But you you were the AL or you were the NL All Star starter, which uh, must have been a huge thing, right? Uh, well, first All Star game, and yeah. and then your name the starting pitcher. What was interesting, the last start that I had prior to the break, and this was after being named to the team, uh, I pitched five days before in in a in a game. I can't remember whether I won or lost, but we had a four-game series in Atlanta. And I remember telling Danny, I said, look, we got the break coming up. If you need somebody extra in the bullpen, uh, I said, I think I can do that for you. And he says, well, I'll keep that in mind. But what he had in mind was holding me out so that I would be I would be in the running for uh, the uh, starting uh-huh. job with the all-star team. I didn't realize that until later. Right. That that's the reason why he did it. Well, apparently Danny got what he had hoped and I got an experience that is uh, right. un, that's unparalleled and though many guys have played the game don't not many get a chance to start an all-star game. Three innings pitch, zero runs allowed. Who was a Walter Austin? Was he the manager? Is he the one who named you? Okay. And uh, I, I guess the biggest mark on there, I'm curious about, you, you pegged old uh, Thurman Munson in the leg, in the right knee with a with a pitch. What, was <laughs> Did that just get away from you? Were you? And then you almost brushed Reggie ba- Jackson back on the next play. I don't know, or the next, the next uh, at bat. You know, you know, as I sit here, I don't recall. You gotta watch. I don't it. remember. It's, it's, it's you know, epic. <laughs> I, I had um, I had the game on. I think somebody uploaded it to YouTube. Yep. And so I watched a little bit of it, but it got to be too long, and I had some things to do. So I watched a little bit of me pitching, and I said, you know, that's nice. It'll be on YouTube, if and when the time comes for me to watch it. Eventually, right. there's a collector out there who was kind enough to put the game on a DVD, a couple of DVDs, and send it to me. I said, but I just haven't found time. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't haven't found time to look at it, but if I hit Thurman, it was, it wasn't intentionally. If I brush Reggie back, (laughs) um, it might've been (laughs) push him off the plate. I I just wanted to see what kind of reaction I get. I got you. Uh, 76. Uh, I don't want with, with all you did in your career, I don't want this to go unnoticed, but you hit, you hit a two RBI triple. And uh, later on, you'd hit a home run in your career. But what 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 do you think was more difficult, a triple or a home run? Were you? No, the most difficult thing was running the bases on that triple. <laughs> and I had to remember, you, you touch the thing that looks like a house, you turn left, go 90 <laughs> feet, you do it again. And then if the guy's holding his arms up at the next house, you stop, you wait. <laughs> Did I, you go for the big puffy the... jacket? I well no I didn't hit with the jacket but when you're running out of triple you know yeah. it's just not something you do that often I yeah. don't really recall who it was against I guess I'll have to look that up now yeah I don't know that I wish I did I know we'll talk about your home run later which is another epic bomb but tell me about uh, another thing that's I find interesting and I remember this but you seem to go back and forth between, or not you, but pitchers, like you said, you would volunteer for some pen work or whatever. And I think your tenure in Pittsburgh kind of ended with that uncertainty. Were you going to be a starter? Or were you not going to be a starter, you know, in 79? was Am I recalling that correctly? Well, I had my struggles in, um, in 77. I got out of the gates. I didn't win a game for a couple of months. And then I eventually ended up with 10. 
And in 78, the Pirates had a kid by the name of Don Robinson come along and he was ready for the big leagues. And boy, when he came in, he was lights out. So it became a matter of numbers. I was struggling as a starter. Robinson wasn't, needed just five starters. So I was sent to the pen. And it didn't do me a whole lot of good because uh, the Pirate starters, they got their six innings in and then they set up the bullpen accordingly. Uh, Left-hander, right-hander, they were doing that back in the 70s. So uh, the only time I got into a ball game is when a starter struggled. And that's a tough place to be because you think I want to play, but the only way I'm going to get in there is if somebody else has a bad day. And I didn't want to sit there in the bullpen thinking, you know, I hope you get, I hope you get your butt kicked in this game right. so I can play. Yeah. Um, that, that's not a good place to be mentally. So yeah. uh, it was time they tried to trade me in '78 to the Cubs, uh, but I had a contract that had a no trade in it. And I said, uh, if you want make this trade, let's buy me out of that no trade. I asked for it specifically for a couple of reasons. One, I was happy in Pittsburgh, and I thought I'd finish my career there. <laughs> Ironically, I did. Right, right. But, um, but it was also as a hedge against the contracts that were leapfrogging, as it seemed every week passed. And if they attempted to trade me, that brought my contract up to a new level. Right. And so I figured out what it was that I needed to just keep pace with what was going on in baseball and what my dollars were worth coming to me from the Pirates. So I named the price. The Pirates said no. We asked the Cubs, meaning my agent, myself, and the Cubs said no. So I sat. And um, then finally came in and won three games in September when they had a lot of double headers. So it did work out. And uh, I did ask Chuck Tanner, I said, am I going to be in your plans for next year? Uh, he says, well, based on what I know right now, you will be. But I guess that was kind of a false hope because uh, in baseball, a manager and a general manager, their concern is about putting the best 25 on the field every single day. Mm -hmm. And if something comes up just after I had this conversation with somebody that meant that I had to go somewhere else and that meant that the pirates in their estimation were going to be better, they have to make the deal. Right. And I understand that that's, um, that's professional and you're doing your job. But the personal part is when they tell you you're instrumental with this club and we think the world of you and we want you to do this and do that for us, work in the off season for us. Uh, they're asking a lot when they know that a phone call, a quick phone call, and in their estimation, they got a better deal coming right. if you're going. Right. Well, it worked out for you. You head west, right? Uh, literally greener pastures, but uh, it must have stung at first. They win the championship in 79. You go to L.A., um, and you may, may, maybe you think you just missed one, right? You, you almost got a ring, but... Uh, no, I didn't. You know, I, that never, I never thought, never entered my mind because I, I don't know what I would have contributed. Had right. I stayed there the whole year, and if I didn't accept a trade to the Dodgers, I would have to probably accept a trade somewhere else. So I liked where I was, and I liked what I was doing with the Dodgers, and I said, things are going to change here, and right. I'm going to find a way to make it happen. Um, so when they won in 79, I was thrilled. I was happy for each of them. And in 1980, 
I made a point to go over and shake the hands of everybody uh, for a job well done. Right. Speaking of well done, 1980 for you. Wow. 18 and six, uh, six shutouts. The thing that sticks out on your, your stat line for me, the way I look at things is you also had three saves uh, and a 251. How do you get three saves when you're uh, going out there every four days and, and getting wins as a starter? How does that happen in the middle of the season? Well, like the Pirates that? in the winter of 79-80 signed Dave Goltz as a free agent. The Dodgers and did. Goals, yeah. yeah, because of yeah. the bucks he was making, he that meant that he was a starting pitcher. And once again, I was the odd man out. But this time, after the experience I had in Pittsburgh, I knew that during the course of the season, somebody was going to struggle because, to my knowledge, no team has ever gone through an entire season with the same five-man starting staff. Right. Maybe it has. Right. but Was it five men back then or was it four? They were at the no, five-man five. point at that point? Okay. Yeah, it was a five-man rotation during almost all of my career. Okay. So, And somebody did get hurt. I think Sutcliffe got sick. I went and got the start for him, pitched well, and Lasorda said, you're going to stay in the rotation. Wow. Uh, and then when Dave Goltz couldn't make the call, uh, Sutcliffe took over his place, and that's the way Lasorda did it. And yeah. then once I got acclimated to working on a regular schedule, then my June took off and it Crazy. propelled me to another all-star game and to an 18 game season. Yeah. You uh, let's, let's talk about June, right? Uh, you, you give up a, a, a hit in the first inning, I guess to Jack Clark, I think to not a hit, a, an error to uh, Bill Russell kind of swallowed a ball there. Uh, pitch a no hitter, right? And you're pitching yeah. against our Vita blue that we talked about same guy, same guy you pitched against in the 75 all-star game. You started against yeah. here he is in San Francisco. Uh, there's some fascinating things about that game. First of all, you guys had 17 hits. Uh, you only had two strikeouts. I think you threw 18 or 17 ground balls, which is crazy. How do you stay focused when your, your new team's banging out 17 hits and all that stuff? It's still a quick game, it's still a two hour plus game, but how do you, the nerves must have been crazy, and these guys, these guys keep getting hits. You just want to get out there and throw the ball, right? At a certain point, you know, I just took it as it came. Uh, it, you know, for me, I had gone through almost a no hitter previously right. with Houston, mm -hmm. and it got broken up in the ninth inning. So at least I've walked that path one time before. Right. But in San Francisco, they had this huge scoreboard, and every time you turn your face to well, from the visiting dugout to third base, you can see the scoreboard <laughs> Zero. and all the numbers yeah. are right there. Yeah. So uh, for me, it became a game of let's get through this inning, get one out at a time, one pitch at a time. Okay. And you know, it, it became more of a reality as I got around the fifth inning. Right. And I was aware from the start that I hadn't given up a hit. You knew you so, had the stuff at that point? Like you knew you, you had know, the stuff or was it just a, another game? Well, it, I don't, I don't remember anything extraordinary. Okay. You know, I only had two strikeouts, Man. so I, I wasn't missing a whole lot of bats, but <laughs> it was, they were just off the barrel enough for yeah. them to become in most cases, routine plays. And you had that so, infield, you know, you had that infield, which was. Yeah. The, and, it, and it was grass and it was yeah. high grass, but you know, the guys made the plays behind me with the exception of the, uh, the Russell ground ball. It was an easy two hopper in the first mm -hmm. inning. He one hopped it over to first base and 
most of the time, Garvey just gobbles those things up. Right. But this time, it hit off the heel of his glove, came out, and it was scored in air. But one thing it did do is that it altered uh, the complexion of the lineup. So instead of pitching to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, oh, right. eight, nine, right. it became a bit askew yeah. and became um, one, two, three, four, five, mm -hmm. six, seven, eight, right. nine, one, and then it followed that pattern. Yeah, now, yeah. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Uh, maybe it did because I did ultimately get the no hitter. But right. um, but on that play, the on the infield play with Russell Clark was running it out and must have hurt himself because he yeah. came out of the game a few innings later. Yep. And pinch, Clark got hit, pinch hit for or, or replaced yeah, Clark hit, replacement. Yeah. Yeah, Clark hit me pretty well. So with him out of the lineup, that was just one uh, big bat that I didn't have to uh, worry about. But my focus in 1980 is get somebody out on one of the first three pitches and throw two out of the first three pitches for strikes. And that's a that that's a tall order, but if you can if you're able to do that, you're going to get a lot of early count outs. Now you're not going to get a whole lot of strikeouts. Right. But your team, especially a team like the Dodgers, which was more offensively loaded than they were defensively, it played right into their scheme of things. So we were we, the Dodgers of 1980, were able to put some runs on the board. So there was quite a cushion to work with. And then it just became a series of getting one out at a time. And when you get after you finish six innings, they noticed the crowd, they were cheering for the no hitter. Right. Right. And they get through the six. Now I'm, I'm thinking nine more outs. And let's see what we can do. Then there was eight. Then there was seven. Right. Then there was six. Um, and then it just became that. Then finally I got to that last out. You know who that was? Under. You know who yeah, that was? That yeah, it was Bill North. And I'm thinking, yeah. all I have to do is get one out. So don't change right. a thing. Don't try to overthrow. <laughs> the second pitch, I jam him. He hits a little number back to me. I yeah. throw to first base. This time, Garvey caught it. And <laughs> it was a no-hitter. You know, the interesting thing after the game, and when I was in the locker room, the first question that was asked to me, were you disappointed you didn't get a perfect game? And I said, how can I be disappointed yeah. when you pitch a no-hitter? Yeah, right. 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 They, but they, but then the reporter kept at it and said, but a perfect game is is, is something even more rare. And I said, I got a no-hitter. No I'm good. Yeah. I'm real good. I'm real good. Then Leonard Coppett. You remember Leonard Coppett? I Leonard is know. a Hall of Fame sports writer on the West Coast. Okay. He wrote an article about it, and he probably gave me the best perspective about it that anybody ever could. He said, what I did out there was one out better than a perfect game. You only need 27 in a yeah. perfect game. Yeah, I yeah, got the equivalent true. of 28. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah so it's a good point, how many right? Guys, a good point. How many guys who have thrown no hitters had to get uh, the equivalent of at least 28 outs? True. You're so right. um, it's an even rarer breed than <laughs> those guys who pitched a perfect game. So for the last 30 or so years, I've rode with that on my back. It's great. And then and then uh, a couple weeks later, you get your all-star win. Uh, you didn't start, but you, you're the winning pitcher in the 1980 all-star game. You did strike out the side there. So uh, one inning struck out three and and uh, you get to hang get to hang that medal around your neck and more importantly, in 1980, Nino Espinosa was the pitcher, and uh, that 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 teed you up. You want to tell me about that? Uh, yeah, he just threw a high fastball, and I was able to get under it. 
I was late and the ball carried down the left field line at Veterans Stadium in, in Philadelphia. And I didn't know if it was going to have the distance. I didn't even know if it was going to be fair. So I started running and then um, I could hear it hit the top of the fence. And instead of coming back into the field to play, it hit that little netting that was the foul pole. And fortunately for me, it, it turned out to be a home run. The guys in the bullpen got the ball and they gave it to me after the game. That ball is sitting in a plastic case about 10 or 15 feet from where I'm sitting right now. That's great. I think you describe that as the absolute minimum you get to hit a ball to get a home run. That's what. Yeah, that, if, that's if, what you did. if you could hit a ball less, in fact, it probably was just a hair. If the ball had actually landed, the fence was three thirty. This would have probably been something like three thirty three or three thirty four. Right, right. Great times. And then uh, I think did you guys play a one game or a playoff with the with the Astros that year, or was that a three game? I mean, you were pretty tight with the Astros that year, I believe. Yeah, we were three games out, three games left at Dodger Stadium. And we won all three, and that brought um, that brought a playoff on Monday. Right. Dave Gold started the game, but it was all Houston from the very start. Yeah. So it was an exciting weekend, but it just it didn't end the way that we had hoped. I want to backtrack just a little bit here because also pitching in that all-star game was J.R. Richard. I believe that's the last time we saw J.R. Richard pitch. Uh, that guy, I, I say the Phillies, my beloved Phillies won the World Series in 80. If Jr. had been healthy, I don't think the Phillies would have won. But what was it? What was Jr. could deal, right? He could throw some balls and uh, just a phenomenal pitcher. Um, did you, you notice you anything at that game in the eighty All Star game? Uh, in the All Star game, no. He got the start. He deserved it. He was having one heck of a year. In fact, there were a lot of guys who deserved to be the starting pitcher for both teams. Right. So Jr. <laughs> I played with him at Houston for one. Uh, I wasn't used to seeing guys who were taller than me uh, when I when I had conversations <laughs> yeah, with them. Yeah. So that was a little. You're bit six of a, five, by the way. I mean, that's yeah. You know, and he was six eight. Yeah, yeah. He was six eight, maybe a little bit more, but he had the biggest hands I'd ever seen. Uh, it was like he, uh, he would have to have extended fingers on a baseball glove to fit his hand in there. And Willie Stargell probably said it best about Jr. He said he'd be easy to hit is that if he didn't throw the ball and every time he threw the ball, his fingers got in my eyes. <laughs> Had a bit of a reach, huh? That's he did crazy, have man. some reach. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, the, the watershed moments of my youth was, was, you know, obviously Thurman Munson, but also uh JR just, just uh, what a shame, but uh, you know, we move on to 1981 and 1981, you finally get your ring. Not that that's the biggest thing in the world, but you get a, get a ring. There's a strike. You guys are one of the one of the champions. There was four division champions in the NL that that year, right? And then in each Eastern and Western division, the best team with the overall record didn't make it in the playoffs, I believe, right? So I think you guys won the first the the, the pre-strike thing. And does that mean the rest of the year you guys have a bye for the playoffs? Is that what well we is, were gonna be in there, that's for sure. Um and if we had won the second half as well, it would have been the team with the next best record the in our division. Right. And okay. because, and that was a little bit screwy because two teams had better records overall than um, both us and um, and Montreal. Phillies and, yeah, Phillies and the Expos 
were the co-champions yeah. and then i forget who had uh, it was st louis or somebody had a better record yeah st on. louis had a better record and then yeah. um cincinnati had a better record than us overall so okay. uh looking back i i remember reading they they believe they got cheated but they knew the rules going in yeah. and there's nothing you can do about it that's just the way it worked out yeah you're 10 and 4 230 era but uh i think you know, you did win the championship, um, but I think bigger than that was you had a front row seat to another left-hander who shows up on the scene, Fernando. And uh, what was that like? This kid coming out of Mexico who completely unorthodox style, you know, just captivated, I think, the baseball world uh, that year. Nobody believed he was 19 or 20, <laughs> whatever he was reported, because uh, he came on the scene and had – uh, like he had 10 years experience right. he carried himself that well and i think growing up in mexico he didn't develop the awe that so many other players did of the people they're going to play against or play alongside right. he just went out and did the job he was compartmentalized as well as anybody right. and he seemed to catch the attention of everybody around baseball now we drew crowds we had uh, standing room only when Fernando pitched, not only at home, but when he went on the road as well. So it was a phenomenon that I hadn't seen before and I hadn't seen since. Right. But he caught everybody's imagination, and and I don't think we would have made the World Series without him. Uh, you're down two games uh, against the Yankees, and you guys come back, win four in a row. You pitched, I think, game five, gave up one run, complete game. Yeah, uh, that, that must have it. felt great, right? Uh, well, on that field, what do you think? You know, at this point in your career, you've been playing twelve, almost thirteen years. What do you think that that was the crowning achievement that that game five complete, or do you think it's the no hitter? What do you think? Well, let me let me just put some meat on the bones for this conversation here. Every kid who collects baseball cards has that dream to one day be a major leaguer, mm -hmm. and if you're going to dream, you're going to dream big. You're going to be in an all-star game. You're going to win a batting title or the Cy Young or, or you're going to have a great career. So all of those different things come together, including pitching in a World Series. And for me, that was the dream. Now, the series was tied at two games each. It was a pivotal fifth game. The Dodgers were up against Ron Guidry, and mm. for six innings, he outpitched me. Wow. He led one to nothing, but he outpitched me. Two you lefties. Know, until he, yeah, until he gave up those home runs in the seventh, he'd retired 15 of 16 batters, eight of them on strikeouts. So Gidry was on cruise control. Right. And then I remember coming off the field after the seventh inning, and I was thinking to myself, just get me a run. Get me a run and let me hold it from there if you can. Uh, and then after the game, I thought I should have asked sooner. But <laughs> what happened is that he hung a slider to Guerrero, hit it for a home run. Four pitches, maybe five later, he tried to sneak a fastball past Steve Yeager, and Yeager hit it out. So within the course of five pitches, the complexion of the game and the series had changed. The momentum had shifted. Then it was up to me to get the final six outs, but – uh, that's not the big part of the story because there was still another surprise coming up. In the eighth inning, Gossage came in, 
and he hit Ron Say in the head with the pitch. Hmm. And Gossage threw pretty hard, so Say was down for quite a while. And suddenly, a stadium that was jumping with over 56,000 in it got unbelievably quiet until he finally got up. Right. And they carried him off the field. But we got those final six outs, and leading three games to two, we went back to New York. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's what every kid dreams of, right? Pitching in the World Series and winning a World well, Series. Well, you know, I remember with, um, I think it was, I don't know whether Pinella was running for himself or uh, he got a base hit, but whoever the runner was on first, because I was pitching out of the stretch, to Aurelio Rodriguez, who was playing third base. Mm-hmm. And first pitch, he barely missed the double down the third base line by a few feet. And then two pitches later, I strike him out on a high fastball. But before I did that, I took a moment to rub up that baseball and look around the ballpark. I went from left field all the way around to right field. And I said, this is everything that I thought it would be and more. All 56,000 on their feet, a huge television audience because it's Los Angeles and New York. And and it was my moment. It was. And if I were to rate my personal moments, in my career from best to worst, this would be number two. Number one was winning the World Series in New York and coming back on the plane, finally <laughs> being crowned world champions. Yeah, quite a run. I, a long road to get there, but he got there. And uh, before we get out of L.A., I got two things to ask you about. Well, if you want to talk briefly about I think there was a meeting. Well, Tommy Lasorda, he's from my hometown. Uh, Norristown, PA. Okay. I, I, my bus stop was across the street from his brother's house. I saw the little sort of name every day of my life. What was Tommy like? Was Tommy, was he, you know, was he, you said something earlier where, if you know, are you doing well? He'll keep you in, you know, was, was, what was Tommy? Was he hot and cold? Was he, no, I kept you guessing. He was complex to say the least. Um, they, you know, I played for 15 different managers, 15 different personalities. And for me to try to break down any of them is a near impossible job because my experience with him is probably different from the experience that the guy who dressed next to me had. Right. Uh, but Tom was energetic, among other things. Uh, he loved starting pitchers. And probably if there was ever a criticism about him, he left them in too long. As far as being in the bullpen, and I was, he'd warm me up. And then sometimes as many as three or four times, and when you came in the game, there was nothing left. He couldn't understand that. It took me a while while to learn how to pitch um, coming out of the bullpen. But uh, he wanted to win, and he was willing to put the time and the effort in. But on the, the other side, he was a showman. Mm-hmm. He was a showman and he loved to have interaction with the fans at the ballpark, uh, no matter what. And he would do it in spring training. He'd have guys out after the workouts and he'd throw an hour or two of batting practice and then yell and scream at guys, taunt them, and then talk to the fans in the stands right. at right. the same time. And they loved it. He, it was a great showman. Yeah. Um, he, he, yeah. He, I, so, I wanna... you know, he was among other things. Uh, he was proud to be a member of the Dodgers uh, because, and I think he was sincere about that. 
because that's the organization that he knew. He thought he wanted to be a Yankee, I think, originally. But the Dodgers, because he was with them, uh, you know, became his team. Right. He knew how to uh, a, a motivator to some degree, but he knew how to push people's buttons better than motivating them. Right. He, uh, there's a, a, a nice story about uh, him calling into his office and Leo was there. Um, you know, I know it was years of, you know, there was some water under the bridge, but it was, it was, it's a sweet little story about, uh, you know, a reproach between an old timer and uh, you, and he was kind of the facilitator of that. Uh, what do you remember about that? It was um, after I retired as a player and I was working for ESPN and Leo just happened to come visit Tom. Leo knew his health was failing and toward the end of his life, Leo wanted to make good with some people that he thought that he had wronged or had um, unfinished business with. So he knew that his time was limited. He wanted to come in and see Tom while he could still do it. He had somebody drive him in. And um, when I came by, I said, hey, I've always poked my head in the in the uh, Lasorda's office. Hey, Tom. He said, Jerry, I'm just the man I'm looking for. You remember Leo? And there he was sitting on the couch. And he said, Leo and I had just been talking about you. And he says, right now I got to go out for a few minutes. Why don't I, I think you and Leo had need a conversation about a few things. And um, so he closed the door. Leo and I sat there. And the first thing out of Leo's mouth was, you know, I said some things. And I said, Leo, I said some things. <laughs> and that began. And right. five or 10 minutes later, we hugged each other. And that was the last time I saw him. Right. That's amazing, though. The closure yeah. on his part. And, uh, yeah, just a phenomenal. You don't think of athletes, especially, especially cross-generational. You know, you guys had several generations between you. And uh, you were able to have that moment. I think it's, I think it's very touching. Um, and speaking of touching, uh, help. Can you help me understand uh, Steve Garvey for somebody from Philadelphia who who doesn't understand Steve Garvey? Was what was what, Steve Garvey what, like? I'm going to ask you what what is it that you don't understand? I about just the guy he, he, was he perfect? Was he perfect? Hell no, nobody's <laughs> perfect, and he had his faults just like everybody else. But right. he strived to be as good as he could be. Okay, he made his mind up early as a child that he was going to be the best that he could possibly be. Right. And he he wanted to be the best student. He wanted to be the best athlete. Uh, he wanted to help people. All of those different things, those, uh, those uh, were ingrained with him as a child. And he took it with him wherever he went. Right. And, and he put himself up there. And, and he claimed that, you know, this is the way I want to be. And he promoted himself. Now, I never had a problem with it. I I think he's one of the best guys I'd ever met in the game. And of the guys, of the friendships that I have from the game, I don't see Steve that often because both of us have gone on and uh, finished our lives. But uh, he's still the same. And we could sit down right now and pick up where we had our last conversation some years ago. So, you know, for me, uh, he was he was pretty much who he wanted to be. Uh, I got a story about him in spring training. We went out to dinner one time and there comes a, a guy who wants to talk to Steve. He's recognizes him. And the guy says, you know, my, my mom and dad just wouldn't believe that I'm sitting next to you right here. 
And Steve looked at him. He says, well, let's go call him. And I couldn't <laughs> believe what I was hearing. I, I nearly, I nearly choked in my beer. So next thing I know, I look out at the payphone. This is back before cell phones. Right, right. And the guy's dialing his parents, putting the quarters in. And uh, there's Steve on the phone talking to him. Uh, he gave him two or three minutes. And then right. he came back to me and he, he said, did you miss me? <laughs> I said, that's, I said, what you did there was extraordinary. I, yeah. I don't know of anybody else that would have done something like that other than you. Well, there were a few guys that would have done that. Right. There, no question about it. I think Willie Stargell would have done it. And at a given time, there probably are dozens of other guys, but Steve did it and he didn't do it to get uh, any credit. He didn't right. do it to place himself to be better than anybody else. He just did it because he thought it was the right thing to do. And it made somebody's day. Hell, it probably made the guy's yeah. trip. And also he probably still tells the story to this yeah. day of something that happened some 35, 40 years ago. Yeah. The cameras weren't around. The writers weren't around. He just did it. Right. He did. Yeah. He, he yeah. That's who he was. Uh, and, yeah. and, and that's what I saw. And we had dinner together quite a bit. And we had fun with him. He had fun with us, but he was always the same person that you see today. So when people look at him and say they think he's phony, well, I don't know what kind of experience they had with him, but based right. on the, the amount of time that I spent with him and during the eighties, it was considerable. He was the same guy that you saw on TV. Yeah. So you know, my team was all afros and sideburns and mustaches. Steve Garvey was the antithesis of that, and of course, we were always, we were always battling the Dodgers in the in the late seventies. So, uh, you know, my it's not I don't know whether it's it's definitely nurture or maybe it's nature, but either way, I've had a proclivity to uh, be the opposite of of uh, the Steve Garvey. Uh, that's for sure. Now, I tell you, I tell you this: if you met him and got a chance to talk to him, you'd walk away and say, you know. That's a pretty good guy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Pretty good guy. I I'm think sure. I may, I, I may have misread this guy. <laughs> all right, all right. You're convincing me. You're, I'm, I'm turning here. Uh, another thing that's fascinating, you, you know, your career is winding down in the late '80s, and you just keep going. You, you, you had no problem going down to the minor leagues. You're a, you won an All Star game, right? You pitched a no hitter. You're a world champion, and, and you just kept going. What was that desire to just keep going? What, what kept you going and, and riding those buses and whatever else you had to do in the minor leagues in the late eighties? Well, I, I still, I still believe that I could pitch in the major leagues. I had an arm surgery that took a lot longer to, to come back from, but eventually I got the strength back. But when I got my strength back, I had noticed that time had taken its toll on my body and all those, all that training that I had done, all that throwing that I've done over the years so yeah. I couldn't muster up the velocity that I once had, but I still had the smarts to get somebody out. Um, but I wasn't as consistent as I was during, um, during the heyday. So in 87, I ended up with three teams released from the Dodgers, released from the Reds and the angels weren't even interested. So I go into 1988 with no team and it's the first week of February and my agent is able to get me a tryout with the White Sox. No promises, nothing. Right. Uh, but I didn't remember meeting Jerry Reinsdorf. I, I'm not jumping ahead of you, am I? No, no, you're good. Yeah, you're, no. you're good. So anyway, I remember Reinsdorf down at um, down in Sarasota. He said, you know, years ago, 
I took a flyer on Tom Seaver. Uh, he was available. And I said, you know, I want, I want to get him and he, I'd like to see him win his 300th game in a Sox uniform, but I got more plans for him because I'm in a rebuilding mode. And he realized, and his people told him this, that if you keep 10 pitchers, a guy like Seaver is going to make the other nine even better. Right. Right. And it helped develop a lot of guys faster and made them better than what they probably would have been had Seaver not been there. Right. Seaver did win his 300th game and, um, and he made his way to the hall of fame. Yep. Now, fast forward a little bit with me. He came to me and he said, I asked people about you all around baseball. I got good and I got bad. I said, but the key thing that I focused on, can you help develop these young kids that I have? Would you be willing to do that? If you're not, if you're just here for yourself, I, there's not a whole lot I can do for you. But if you're, but if you got a mindset to not only be a team leader when you come in here, but also give yourself a chance to get strong, win some ball games. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trade you. How about that? Oh. I'm going to trade you to a team that's a contender at the end of your contract. So that way there's the, there's the brass ring you can grab right. onto right. and at the same time win some ball games. But I want you to do something for me. Wow. And Reinsdorf kept his word. I'd never had an owner ever give me yeah. comments like that. Yeah, right. So and he did and he did trade me, trade me to Milwaukee, but it just didn't work out in Milwaukee. In my second start, I pulled a hamstring and never fully healed. And by the time I was healthy, the uh, brewers were out of contention and they weren't interested in bringing me back. You end up somehow you end up with Pete Rose, right? I was with him in Cincinnati and it just, it, you know, I pitched in the minor leagues. I did well. Then they wanted me to pitch an exhibition game against Detroit. And I went six innings in that game and, and I pitched pretty well against them. So he said, we'll take you, but things just didn't work out pitching for the Reds. Right. Uh, I think I was 0 and five and made six or seven starts. And then they said, we just can't stay with this guy. We, we got to do something else. So uh, they released me. I went over to the Angels and won my first start. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it it was just an odd kind of year, and right. I was glad when it was over because this was a it was not what I had planned for me to do in 1987. So uh, I turned the page, went to 88 and 89, and then I, I'm in 1990, and I again I can't get a place. Right. But because of the relationship that I had with Jeff Torborg, who was then the manager of the White Sox, uh, I was able to get a non-roster situation again for me in spring training. And he told me right up front, he says, the only way we take you with us if it, is if somebody gets hurt. He said, we don't want that. But, well, I'll give you a chance to get the innings in so that you can show somebody what you can do. Well, I had a couple of good games and a couple of bad games. And coming out of spring training, there wasn't a place for me anywhere else. So it's back to the minor leagues. This time, double A ball with the with the Astros. Double A, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Then I spent two and a half weeks in Columbus, Georgia, before I went to Tucson. And then I, being in AAA for 10 days, things once again just didn't work out. But I had this desire to say, I'm not going to finish my career like this. Uh, there's still got to be a better way. So I pitched in a Sunday league for two months in Pasadena, California. 
Right, right by the Rose Bowl. There's a baseball yeah. field. That's where flea I would be. Flea market, pitch. yeah, flea market yeah. and uh, Sunday yeah. baseball. Yeah, yeah, and um, I got the ten- the attention of a pirate scout, a former Dodger player by the name of Ed Roebuck. Ed sent in a nice report on me, and I was in contact with the Pirates. They said we'd like to see you throw when we come out there just before the All Star break. So I show up at Dodger Stadium, and I have one of the best bullpens a man could possibly have. So they said, after the All-Star break, we're going to send you to AAA with Buffalo. I pitched well in AAA with a promise that if they needed someone and I was available and doing well, that I'd get to call. Well, that was the best chance that I had. Right. I did do well in Buffalo, but a couple of things happened. Um, there was a chance for me two different games. One, I had already pitched just two days before, so I couldn't start. Then there was another one but they chose to see this kid out of double A who would be a a pretty good pitcher in the future for him. And uh, he pitched well enough to stay with the club. They sent somebody else out. And so it worked out that I would be a September call up. And that's how I got into pitching into the 1990s with the pirates. So for Leland, right? I got into four games. Yeah. Jim Leland, Barry Bonds, right? So there's the the arc from Babe Ruth to to Barry Bonds is Leo DeRocher, Jerry yeah. Royce. Yeah, that's that was interesting because I had a locker, a little sliver of a locker, in a space between Barry and Bobby Bonilla. <laughs> and what I an said, Boys, yeah, and I and I sat between them, and I t- I found out <laughs> that I said once again these are guys I would have never spent any time with, but in the time that I was uh, in that home clubhouse. They traded me. They traded me like gold. Yeah, and I you said, pitched against his dad in the All Star game, by the way. In yeah, 75. I pitched yeah. against his dad. He knew me from it, so yeah. uh, there was a connection there. So it it was quite an experience. And then in uh, St. Louis, the last weekend of the season, I figured this is going to be it. I don't want to go through this yeah. again. I've come back, and I've, I've I've got enough respect for myself to say that's it. So. I told family and friends on Friday, Saturday, I told Jim Leland, Sunday, the Pirates win the Eastern Division. Monday, we get back to Pittsburgh. We have three games left, and I wanted to throw a bullpen, uh, even though the starting pitcher was throwing, but I said, I got to get some work in, even though I know my career only has three days left. And so uh, the protocol was to call down to get permission to do it. I got permission and so I started doing my throwing, and then the phone rings for me. And it's for me down in the bullpen. I said, who's calling me? <laughs> and it turned out it was Ray Miller, the pitching coach. He said, um, I talked to Jimmy about you throwing tonight, and he asked me if you'd like to start the final game of the season. It's crazy. Huh? I said, hell yeah. Wow. So, uh, and he said, well, you know what you have to do? So I visited with Leland on Tuesday because he had this, uh, it wasn't a habit. He just did it on his own. He had conversations with all of his players, as many as he could. So on Tuesday, he visits me and he says, you're going to be okay. And I said, I I know I'm going to be okay, but, um, you know, we got integrity here as well. But if you see something, you got to do what you got to do. He says, you're going to be all right. And so ended up going five and a third, came out of the game losing three to one, but it was in Pittsburgh on a picture perfect, Wednesday afternoon, about 75, 80 degrees, a crowd of better than 20,000. And I walked off my final in my final game to a standing ovation. 
Incredible, huh? And, and a lot of things went through my mind at that time, including all of the guys who had come before me. And when they retired, did they retire um, with this kind of reception? Right. Uh, did they retire with this kind of style? And I know that many of the greats didn't. Right. But I was blessed to finish my career in a place for a manager that gave me a chance to finish it on my terms. So uh, it's been 33 plus years and I'm forever grateful to Jim Leland uh, for it happening. And, and there was nobody that was happier a few months ago when I learned that he was selected to the hall of fame. So uh, to Jim, if you're watching this and you should be, (laughs) thanks again for making my career, putting a perfect, um, I guess it's cherry on top of the Sunday. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, what a great, it's not like you were in some other town, you were in Pittsburgh where you made a lot of your memories and and you knew uh, that was it, right? There was no ambiguity about it. It just, you went out on your own terms, you know, you yeah. like to pitch a no hitter, but boy, five and a third uh, in front of the home crowd. That's not bad. It's not bad no, at it, all. Huh? It, it's, um, there, there probably could be a dream way to do it. Like, Let's say Ted Williams hitting a home run is final right, with that. Right, right, Or right. Stan Musial getting a base hit in yep. St. Louis. Yep. Um, or some other guys like Gary Carter who finished with a pinch hit double and yep. ran off the field. There are a lot of guys who finished in, in greater style. But, you know, for me, this worked. Yeah, and to for this sure. day, whenever I think about that, I still get a warm and fuzzy about it. Yeah. Uh, because I was one of the lucky guys who played four different decades 22 different seasons and got a chance to finish the, my career on my terms. That, yep. that's, that's a big ask, but I got it. Yeah. You don't get to write your own, uh, your own chapter, your own final chapter sometimes. So that's great. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And wanted to talk to you about a couple of things. I've had you way too long and I appreciate it. Boy, I, I can talk and you, your stories are absolutely riveting, but you go into coaching, right? And then, and then uh, you find your way into the broadcast booth. Um, you know, what was, was, was it a concerted effort to leave coaching and, or, you know, why did you not become a lifer on the bench? I guess. Well, I started as a broadcaster in 91 to 93. I worked for ESPN. Okay. Then I did a number of games for two years for Baseball Night in America. Then I worked three years doing TV, half a schedule for the Angels. Then I did a coaching gig for five years and a a job opened with the Dodgers to do radio because Vin was limiting the schedule where he would travel. So I had the road schedule on radio with Rick Monday for three years. So uh, I bounced around quite a bit as a broadcaster. And when I came back after that gig with the Dodgers, uh, I did minor league games here in Las Vegas for a number of years, up until about four years ago when I said, um, there's not much more I can prove. I've done everything that I can do. It's not going to evolve into anything from here other than I'm in my 70s and let's go ahead and do some things that are just a bit different outside of the game of baseball. So one of the things about your stint in Vegas as a, as a, I assume color commentator was uh, the chance meeting that one of your manager's name, uh, you overlapped with Jerry Royster. Was there ever any confusion between Jerry Royce and Jerry Royster? I mean, yeah, we things... were asked that on TV. Were you? And, okay. Yeah, we were asked that on TV and 
it was, this is one of my classic lines. And I said, for the life of me, for the life of me, I can't understand how people could confuse us. You know, Jerry is an African-American and I'm, and I'm about as white haired as you can be. And I looked and I deadpanned at the announcer. I said, Royster is right-handed. I'm left-handed. How could <laughs> people great, confuse Eddie. us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I anyway, told Jerry I had to get that the, in. I'm sorry. Yeah, I told Jerry at the end, I said, you know, I said, since we get confused, we got each other's mail. Since we get confused so much, let's do this. Let's promise to tip well, because I don't want to go somewhere <laughs> yeah, where yeah, you didn't yeah. tip somebody, and then great I catch point. the brunt. That's a great point. Uh, let's finish off with some cards. What is your, your memory of cards? Because what people might, might not know about you, and I'm kind of curious is you bought your, I believe from the tops of all, you bought your proofs or your negatives from your cards. That's right. is that, I did. Which is pretty, uh, pretty well, wild. I think that that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the interesting thing about the cards is that, uh, people would send them to me all the time. They'd have extras. I'm, I guess in the, in the vernacular of those who collect a common. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> I'd rather you are, be in the common. I'm going to tell you right here on the screen, I have a 1972 high number that that yeah. card is worth significantly more than your rookie card because of where it falls in the series of cards. I think it's yeah, 775, but, it, but yeah. Yeah, you know, it's that's just one of those things. Those things do happen. Right. Um but I, I was a card collector when I was a kid, and I just used to look at them and admire the uniforms and hoping that one day my picture would appear in there. Well, I get a call or an email from the Dodgers historian who happens to look at eBay and sees there's an auction. If you go back, you can see the picture of when I was with St. Louis in that pitching pose. See the one right there in the center? Yep. That was available. The original artwork or the uh, slide, the negative, Yep. was available. And so I bid on it and won it. When <laughs> I received it from Tops, their subsidiary company, the, the president of that company included his phone number. So I called him and I said, um, how much of this stuff do you got? He says, we're still looking. And I said, can I buy whatever you have? And he says, I got a deal with eBay. I can't sell it to you. And I said, oh, he said, but I'll give it to you. Oh, that's said, well, that's great. Even that is great. Wow. And so then uh, a couple of years later, this guy takes another job and somebody else is in his job. And I find out that something's up for bid. And so I call the same number and talk to the new president. And I said, look, nobody's going to want this any more than me. This is my history that you have right there. Right. And I did a big selling job. And I said, what would it take? How much do you need to cover whatever you think it's worth for me to get everything that you have with me? And then, you know, he named a big price. And I said, you know, that I can understand you asking that price. But uh, for me, I'm going to have to have these pieces. Some of them were four by five right. uh, sent out to be professionally scanned. He says, you know, we've already done that. And I said, hmm. you did. He says, yeah, we have a real high resolution scan of each of these images. He says, I'll just put those on a CD and send it to you if you pay the price. And I said, sold. <laughs> I wrote him a check and then within a week, everything arrived. So uh, it took me a year or two, but I finally scanned them uh, from the CD that they sent, cleaned them up and posted them on Flickr. So most of what you see there is available on Flickr. I know the 76 isn't, 
let's see one the first as i'm looking at these things all but um the 76 and then the one in the lower right hand corner from vero that's, beach yeah that's i don't 80, have either yeah, of those that's 82 yeah yeah i don't i don't have though the original artwork of that but all the other ones i do well i'll tell you what uh i, I told you that uh, i feel like i've known your your face has been in my life uh most of my life and and part of what I loved about your cards that always struck me was uh, when I looked at your face, uh, it looked like you were playing a game or you were part of a game. So many, so many players over the years it made it look, uh, made it look difficult, you know, in their poses and stuff like that. The only other person I can think of that consistently conveyed the joy of the game was probably Whitey Ford and his cards. So I always appreciated that about you because it's a game right and uh, well it i take that as an ultimate com compliment i'm flattered that you noticed that uh, i'm glad it th came through on the pictures do you realize some of those pictures go back 1969 so yeah. that means you know well, those are better than 50 years old and yeah. and it's a pretty good pictorial of my life from uh, when i started the professional game until well you have me here today so right um, there you have it yeah we all i mean it's it's neat to know that you learned stuff from the back of cards um i certainly have and most of my uh, the people that i associate with uh you know we learned a lot we learned math we learned geography we learned politics you know when players had in military service on the back of their cards sometimes so uh really has taught us a lot and it's it's uh i really appreciated you uh buying your proofs or your negatives, whatever they are, because it, 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 it was kind of a connection with the collector there. And another thing I enjoy is your pictures of stadiums. Cause that's something that I, I do. I know it's a cliche, but I, I look at um, stadiums as cathedrals where all this history happened. And uh, I've always, en I've enjoyed looking at your pictures from both your playing days and, and I guess your uh, TV days of just, taking pictures of empty stadiums from different angles it just shows that your appreciation of the history and and the i guess the present of the uh of the game so uh that's truly appreciated you know john when i took those pictures i didn't know what i was going to do with them they were mainly for my enjoyment and i think somewhere in my mind i knew that those stadiums weren't going to be there forever mm. and little did i know that i captured the essence of so many ballparks that when I posted them on both Flickr and Facebook, the responses I got from people were astounding. So they weren't really my pictures anymore. These were memories of other people as well. Right. Uh, I can't count the number of times somebody told me, I went there with my dad and we did this before he passed away. And my grandfather took me there first when I was five or six years old. We sat just about where you took this picture. And the ballpark's no longer there. Or people that's, uh, that said, I met my wife there, or I met my husband there, uh, or my dad. I think of him every time I think of that stadium. Right. Uh, there's a connection. So uh, for me, I recognize where you're coming from with the baseball cards and how it has affected your life. But the pictures that you see on Facebook and on Flickr, uh, those those memories belong not only to me, but to everybody who takes a moment just to look at it and accept it for what once was. Absolutely incredible. Uh, before we go, I'm just going to go through a couple things with you. 
music music in the 70s give me a band you listened to in the 70s Your favorite Boy, band that was a that's a tough one to pull out a band <laughs> you know i think i once told somebody i said there are so many bands that sound alike with that same screeching <laughs> guitar i think what happens is that it's one band they just have a different lead singer <laughs> but no they're they're gosh i have too many to actually name i'm more of a 60s guy i guess i okay. go back 10 years more but uh, gosh the surf music the beatles how can you not um, uh, be be a fan of the beach boys and the beatles from the 60s and then in the 70s it evolved into uh, some other things and uh, uh, gradually got into country in the 80s and 90s okay. and now it's more of a smooth jazz type of thing but the reason i love smooth jazz is that my hearing isn't anywhere near yeah. as good as what it was back yes. in the day but yes. the quality of the sound through headphones uh, it can just take a bad day and turn it into something really nice for sure absolutely uh give me a player you think belongs in the hall of fame that is not in the hall of fame no uh, you know that's a tough one we talked about garvey before he would merit consideration Tommy John, and I was surprised. I, for some reason, I thought he was there, but he wasn't. Uh, if somebody has a surgery named after him for no other yes. reason, yes, then put him in the Hall of Fame. But he also won 280 games more after the surgery yep. than before. Um, yeah. So there's something to be said for that. Um, you played gosh, with Parker, I, right? You played with Parker. You played I, you know, with I did. Kurt Flood. I think Kurt Flood belongs in there for what he did for you guys. Yeah, for the historic part. Part Al Oliver is another Al one Oliver, who gets yes. some consideration. Yes. Um, gosh, I, it's a shame I, they didn't have interleague play when it, so I could see the American yeah, League guys true. day in and day out. Point. Yeah, but there were some. Well, there were some great ones even when I was over there briefly in the late eighties. Uh, so I missed out on a lot of that, but watching Dave Parker play, Al Oliver play. Yeah. Um, gosh, I was glad when Ted Simmons made it because I thought he belonged. And, you know, I know I'm going to miss somebody as I'm sitting here. Uh, there are a lot that certainly merit consideration. And you played with most of them, which is incredible. You know, there's like... Well, I, played, people, I either played people, with them yeah. or I played against them. Yeah. Now, talking about playing against, you played against uh, Aaron. You gave, I think, I don't know, four home runs against Aaron maybe, but Aaron, Banks, Mays, Clemente, McCovey. Like, who was the best of the best, do you think? Oh, that you, you know, against? I caught them all later in their career. Yeah. So, you know, it, it it's tough to gauge when, when, when that happens. Uh, when I saw Willie Mays play, that wasn't the Willie Mays of the right, 50s. True. Um, and you had Schmidt, was, right? You you got Schmidt in the meat of his career, and you pitched with Carlton and against yeah, Carlton, right? Yeah. So, you know, I I did see I pitched against some of the all time greats, played alongside some of them, got to know many of them. Uh, I was once asked, it was Paul Molitor pulled up to me in the outfield when I played in Milwaukee. He had only been with the Brewers at that time, okay. and he said to me, he says, "You know, you played a long time, much like I have," and I said, "Yeah." He said, do you think it's more of an advantage to play for a number of teams as opposed to playing with one team? Wow. And I said, Paulie, I said, here's what I got out of mind. I played, uh, this is my eighth different organization, and I played all over the country. And I would have never planned it that way. I would have liked to have stayed with one team. Mm -hmm. But as a result of, of fate, I got to play in cities where I never would have considered living. And I got to know people. Uh, 
in the cities. I got to know the players, Hall of Famers, and then guys who are Hall of Shamers right, um, right. in a number of different cities. Uh, so, and you're you're one of these guys that come to Milwaukee, and when I think of Milwaukee, I think of you and Robin mm-hmm. because of, of what you contributed right. here. Uh, so I never had the luxury of playing in one city uh, to consider myself a part of that. Right. So playing for a number of different teams, well, you got to give up something to get something. Yeah. What you have right here is lifetime. And he said, yeah, you know, I grew up with a lot of people in the front office. Uh, we we celebrated the births of our children. They're um, uh, going to um, uh, church communion and also those um uh, who were Jewish, you got to know all of them mm-hmm. and they're everything religious with them. We got to see them go to high school, get married, have their own kids. He says that I said, yeah, that's the trade-off. I didn't get that. Right. I got it on the tail end, but I got the other things. So uh, you had to give up something. I had to give up something. <laughs> but the odd thing is, is that after I left Milwaukee, Paul played for both Minnesota and Toronto. Toronto so, yeah. <laughs> he got, so he got the best of both worlds. Yeah, and yeah. when I saw him, I reminded him of that some years ago. And he says, you know, I do remember that conversation. And I said, yeah. said, so you brought it up and look what happened. Fate yep, heard you. Yep. As soon as you were telling that story, that's what I was thinking of. He he left town. Jerry got him yeah. to leave town. You know, so. <laughs> well, listen, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I could talk to you for hours. Uh, and uh, your time and your stories are just they're they're priceless so and i appreciate you sharing both with me um thanks so much uh i know my listeners will enjoy this i'm gonna play a little bit more led zeppelin and then uh, just stick around a while in this if that's all right jerry and then i'll say goodbye properly all right well i've got a i've got a march here a couple of things that need to be done before we reach that five o'clock hour so if i can if i can say adios at this point to all of your listeners all your viewers I, I would just say thanks for sticking with us for this uh, long interview. And um, I hope that you enjoyed every minute of it like I did. Awesome. Thanks so much. Be safe. Uh, peace to you and your family. Okay. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you, John. Bye. Thanks. Talk to you. Bye.